0: finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
1: As Buffett says, to be a good investor doesn't require expert mathematical skills or even the the ability to read complex balance sheets great investors have one common trait and that is emotional temperament. They have the right mental makeup.
0: Welcome to everyone's talking money podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Game. There's no judgment, no dumb questions, just smart conversations about you and your money. So come on in and grab a seat. Everyone is welcome here. To be successful at investing, you just want to make sure you don't make a few mistakes that most investors make. The biggest mistake is just not knowing what you're doing when it comes to investing. Like investing in stocks that you just don't understand. Maybe you're afraid of FOMO. Maybe someone says, hey, I got a great stock pick, but you don't know anything about it. Scott Kyle and Patrick Fisher, they want to make sure that you avoid as many of these investing mistakes as possible. Scott is the CEO and chief investment officer at Coastwise Capital Group, a boutique money management firm. Patrick is a financial advisor at CoastWise, and they both are the authors of a new book called The Compound Code, an expert guide to trading stocks and options. You know, we haven't talked a lot on this show about investing in options and dividends, but to be a successful investor, you really need to know how they work. But don't worry, this episode won't get too technical, I promise. We won't go in the weeds. We're just going to get the information that you need. Instead, Scott and Patrick, they share the recipe you need for successful stock investing. We talk about what options are, when you should use them, why you need to know about options, how to buy a good stock, what dividend stocks are, and a whole lot more. All right, I'll let them explain. Let's start talking. We have a lot to talk about today, and I want to start here in the preface of your new book. You write that the last two decades, most of the world markets and finance it's really changed. and um, But investing has remained constant. And you say that on the options front, the number of contracts traded exploded to over 10 billion for the first time ever in 2022, from just over about 1 billion, about 10 years ago. And I can remember about learning about options way back when I was getting my certified financial planner designation. It was still, for me, a bit of a head scratcher but i feel like a lot of people especially in the social media world are really talking about options these days so i you know i want to i want to do a kind of a deep dive into this let's just start out like just give me the the kind of basics what are options like what do we need to know
1: uh, so options are simply a derivative meaning that their value moves in tandem with the underlying asset so for example you can buy stocks like pfizer coca cola abbott labs and others and that's a great way to invest and get exposure to the stock market. You can also, however, use options as a way to um, enhance your stock ownership. So for example, there's something called a call option and that gives the owner of that option the right to buy a stock, or a put option and that gives the owner of that option the right to sell a stock. And so basically options are a tool to give additional flexibility and to, to provide some things like income and downside protection, often in conjunction with a portfolio of a well well-divers- well-diversified portfolio of stocks.
0: So, if we have options, then we don't actually own the stock; we just own the the contract
1: around the options. Great question. Yeah, so you can option you can use options in different ways. You can use options on their own, or you can use options in tandem with stocks. So, let's take the first scenario. Let's say you want to invest in uh, Coca Cola but you either don't have enough money to buy, let's say the number of shares you want to buy, or you just want to use less capital to get exposure to or to benefit from a rise in price of Coca-Cola. So instead of owning the stock itself, you can buy an option, which will, will move in price similarly to the underlying price of, of Coca-Cola. So let's say Coca-Cola is trading at $60 a share. And you don't want to buy 100 shares, which would be $6,000 Coca-Cola. But instead, you want to buy a contract, a Coca-Cola option. You could buy a Coca-Cola call option with a price a strike price of $60. And then if Coca-Cola goes up, you'll also make money as though you own the stock, even though you don't. So that's one way of using options just by themselves. Another example would be if you think the stock market is going to go down, or a particular stock is going to go down, and you want to protect against that decline or profit from that decline, you can buy what's called a put option. A put option typically rises in price as the underlying asset goes down. So you could, for example, buy a put option on the entire market, the SP 500, if, as uh, Michael Berry uh, uh, from the from the famous um, Big Short uh, apparently has recently done, and then if the market drops then you could potentially profit from that drop without owning any stock or shorting any stock. So that those are examples of just using options on their own. And then finally, you can also use options in conjunction with stocks. So for example, let's go back to Coca-Cola. You might own Coca-Cola stock, 100 shares at $60. And let's say you're willing and happy to sell Coca-Cola at a profit at $65 a share. You could sell a call, At $65 per share, such that if the stock gets to $65 a share before that option expires, you'd be required to sell that stock at $65 a share. In exchange for doing so, you get to earn premium because you've sold the call instead of buying a call. So there are all sorts of ways of using options on top of an existing portfolio or by themselves.
0: Yeah. So Patrick, tell me a little bit about like what has caused this like explosion in options over the last few years.
2: That's a great question. I'm not sure I actually know a really good answer for it. But my, my guess, and Scott definitely chime in if, if you feel otherwise, is I think that you have both You know, in the media, you've got people talking about options. You've also got funds now trading options. You have more managers trading options. And so the liquidity is just exponentially higher than it has been. Um, I think the other piece that's interesting to note is that you are now seeing more volume traded on options and derivatives sometimes than you are the underlying securities.
1: Yeah, so the use of options has really exploded in the last decade or so. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is options, whether used on their own or in conjunction with the portfolio, really add an extra tool that um, a lot of people are benefiting from in their portfolios. I know interest rates are higher now, but a couple of years ago, they were near 0%. So it's very hard to generate income in most portfolios. One strategy called the covered call, where you buy a stock and sell a call, is a great way to generate lots of income. Typically, you can generate two to three times the dividend in the form of an option sale. So, for example, Coca Cola has a dividend yield of 3%. You can generate, in some cases, six to 10% additional income. So, as people were searching for ways to generate income, they started using options in their portfolio on top of their stocks. Um, and, And really, options provide a lot of precision and flexibility to achieve various goals in a portfolio. So that could be income generation, volatility reduction, or protection against drops. And so as people just became a bit more sophisticated, they started using options more and more. In addition to the fact they're just being talked about more in the media.
0: Yeah, they are for sure. I mean, it feels like everywhere. I mean, even social media, TikTok is talking about options. Everybody's talking about this. You guys wrote all about them in your book, The, the Compound Code. Uh, but I'm wondering, you know, for someone listening, obviously, we're going to do our best here to, to give some education around options. But how do we get really smart about options and kind of bring that into our, our investing in our portfolios?
1: Yeah. As I said, options can be a great tool to achieve various objectives, but the reality is they are complex. So like with any tool, uh, in the hands of an expert uh, or a doctor, a knife can be life-saving. In the hands of the wrong person, it could be quite destructive. So I'm not going to sugarcoat the fact that options can be complex and they can be risky, but if you do some basic education and use them in the right way, they can actually be a very effective tool to reduce risk, not add risk. Unfortunately, um, there have been a lot of products that have been created that actually add a lot of risk. Um, And so it's extremely important in any form of investing to know what you know and know what you don't know. So there are great resources out there. Our book included The Compound Code and others, where you can Learn some basic information about options, but I would strongly suggest it be like if you've never lifted weights before, you can read all day long, but you're probably well served to hire a personal trainer, at least for the first four or five workouts, just to make sure you don't injure yourself in that weight room. Same thing. I would would really encourage you to work with someone, even if it's a friend who has years of experience, because he or she has made all the mistakes that you're about to make unless you have some good basic knowledge before you get going.
0: Yeah. And we all know about the power of compounding. We've talked about it obviously for years on this show. If you're, if you're an investor, you understand how compounding works. It's great. You know, when you start investing when you're young, because you can, you can save a lot less and you have time on your side and compounding really, really helps. But, you know, what if we're listening and we're in our, you know, thirties or forties or even later, maybe we haven't started investing yet. How do we get compounding to work for us?
2: Yeah, so, so it's, it's never too late to have compounding work for you. And I would say from having done financial planning for, for many clients over the years, it's never too late to start. Um, I will also say that you can never sort of you know trade your way into a retirement plan. You have to save your way there. And so it's always important to look at your budget and just be honest about the cash that's coming into the account and the cash that's going out of the account because the best way to have compounding work for you is to make consistent contributions to the account, whether it's a taxable account or a retirement account.
1: I'd also add that the reality is that people's investment time horizon is often much longer than they realize. Let's say you're 50 years old, which might you know be considered old for a bunch of folks who are listening now, and you're retiring at a typical age of 65. Well, the reality is that at 65, when you start pulling money out, you're you're not taking all of your money out at age 65, you're taking out just a small portion, maybe three or 4%. So your investment time horizon in that case is not 15 years. It's probably closer to 30 or 40 years. In other words, you need to keep having that money work for you into retirement. So the math is still on your side. Yes, it is true. You're better off investing earlier than later and having compound work for you. But don't underestimate the time horizon of your investments, even if you're in your 40s or 50s or even 60s, even if you're close to retirement, you may still have a 20 to 40 year time horizon and compounding can definitely work over those time time periods.
0: I like that, Scott, because we talked a little bit before we started recording about relationship with money and emotions around money and behavioral side of money, which we all know is so critically important to money success to achieving money goals it's also the stumbling block that gets in the way of, of, of so many of us so i i like that thinking because you know i've got i've got a lot of questions that come in from listeners about investing they haven't started Sorry. investing yet or they haven't started putting money in their 401k and they're just panicked about i might only have you know 10 15 years left so this idea that no actually there is more time there is more time for compounding to work. Like tell me a little bit about you know, how do we how do we put our brain in that position where we can kind of avoid all of the noise that's happening as, that's telling us that it's too late.
1: Excellent point. And and both Patrick and I've been fortunate to meet none other than Warren Buffett. And as Buffett says, to be a good investor doesn't require expert mathematical skills or even the the ability to read complex balance sheets great investors have one common trait, and that is emotional temperament. They have the right mental makeup. And so it's the idea of being patient and to not get wrapped up to the latest fad or whatever the media is throwing at you in the moment. It's We're emotional beings. We tend to act on emotion, which can be very beneficial in other areas of life, but it tends to work against us when it comes to investing. So that's why the idea of really sitting down and having a plan and once you have a plan in place, and that plan will make it clear that you have a very long time, typically, associated with your investments, it just helps to reduce all the day-to-day noise, which is just so tempting to get sucked into. Um, but it's so important to recognize that investing is, is truly a marathon. I know it's tried to say, but it's truly a marathon. And you want to focus on the fundamentals and try to negate as much as possible the the noise that's going to hit you day to day. So it's that emotional temperament and that discipline and that long-term orientation that's really going to lead to success.
2: Yeah, and, And I would just add to further draw on the parallels between investing in health and fitness is that I think a lot of times people overestimate what they can do in a day or a week and really underestimate what they can do in 10 or 20 years. And so rather than getting defeated and saying, hey, I'm already 40 or I'm already 50, it's too late, you know, the time has passed, if you're just honest about the fact that you really have more time than you think you do, and you set a plan and you have the discipline and you stick to it, it's remarkable what, what an individual can achieve in 10 or 15 years.
0: So tell me, what, what is Warren Buffett actually like?
2: I will say from, from my experience, anecdotally, I was very fortunate to spend almost an entire day with him in Omaha. He is as wholesome and as authentic as you would envision him to be. I, I remember very vividly it was in November of 2008 when basically the entire financial markets were collapsing. It was the day that Timothy Geithner was voted in as Treasury Secretary, and he was not bothered about any of it. He sat down, had a Diet Coke and had a cheeseburger and a, and a milkshake. And, and we talked about the Chicago Cubs. We talked about Wrigley's chewing gum. He gave me a ride in his Cadillac, which he bought used because it was hail damaged and it was cheap. I mean, he, he, he walks the talk does not have a BlackBerry, does not have an iPhone, does not have an assistant that carries a bunch of stuff. He's, he's a, he's a very simple person. And I think that methodology and just sort of, you know, knowing what you know, and being honest about what you don't know and sticking into your core competencies is, has, has served him very well. And, and it was an honor to me.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I love that. Always, always Anyone I know that meets him always talks about diet coke that <laughs> there's always yeah. a diet coke there. I'm like well you know you gotta you gotta know your thing you gotta know what you like right
2: yeah totally
0: so another thing that you guys talked about um and you talk about it a lot in your book is this idea of risk versus reward and I find you know especially with younger listeners that we have on this show, there is still a, a hesitancy when it comes to investing they either want to invest in something and, you know, get rich quick, right? The cryptocurrency or whatever fad might be there in that particular moment. But what you're really talking about is is the idea of, you know, long-term investing, investing for the long-term, investing for your future. So tell me a little bit about like, how do we put risk versus reward in perspective? So we are taking some risk, but uh, we're also, you know, looking for some sort of reward as well.
2: Yeah. So I'll, I'll take a stab at this. And then, Scott, you can kind of chime in with your comments. I think one of, one of the questions and conversations that always comes up in financial planning is the conversation about risk. And there's different types and different definitions of risk. In a financial planning or long-term investing perspective, real mathematical risk is the risk of running out of money or put another way, the individual outliving their money. So that's mathematical risk, which is defined by time horizon and cash flows and you can pretty well mathematically determine what someone's asset allocation or exposure to equities is to fixed income, given their time horizon. Then there's this sort of a little bit more emotional definition of risk, which is I wake up in the morning and the market's down 1%. How do I feel? Which is sort of this like risk tolerance type of a thing. And then I guess if you're looking at like a risk reward, that's more of a trading perspective, which is, you know, I'm, I'm buying this position or I'm selling this position and the downside is X. And the upside is why. And you can kind of say, here's the risk reward of this individual trade. I think in the, in the world of investing, it's really a function of time horizon. And once you have a sense of what that is, that will determine how much allocation towards equities or risky assets, as some people like to think about it, you can and you should have. Um, but really, when you get down to what the individual is trying to achieve in the time horizon that they have, you can get a pretty good sense of how much risk they should be taking or should not be taking
1: yeah if i can add the traditional definition of risk as it's suggested in the media every day is that idea of short-term price movement in other words you hear about stocks are risky right now because they're moving around a lot in other words short-term volatility the reality is that that isn't nor should be a form of risk at all and I'll explain why. Risk ultimately is not knowing what you're doing, and that's the ultimate form of risk. Uh, again, I, I, I swam the English Channel, and if you put me in the middle of the ocean uh, or three miles offshore, there was virtually no risk for me not making it to shore because I was an expert swimmer. In fact, I needed to do that in order to achieve my goal. So, whereas you put someone doesn't know how to swim three miles off the ocean, they're taking tremendous risk. So, all forms of risk are a function of one's skill set and circumstances. But this idea that stock prices moving up and down are a form of risk is really just looking at things backwards. The reality is that the longer you own stocks, the less risky they are, assuming you own a broad basket of stocks. In other words, mathematically, the probability of of having a positive outcome, having positive returns over 10 years is something like 98% in stocks. For any given year, it might be 60 or 70%. But for for the holding period that you should have for stocks, the the risks in terms of losing money are actually very, very low. So again, it's so important to, to define what risk is and to really move away from the idea that stock ownership risk is losing money in a day or a week. Because if you need the money in a short period of time, you shouldn't be in stocks to begin with. Rule number one in investing is allocate your assets. Consistent with the time horizon. If you need money for lunch today or to pay your mortgage this month, you shouldn't be in stocks. You should be in cash or fixed income. If you need your future self, your 10 year from now self, 20 year from now self needs money, then it should be in stocks because that's the best way to get returns in excess of inflation. By definition, if your future self, your retirement self, um, by definition, they don't need the money today. And therefore, it doesn't matter if stocks are up or down or sideways today. The question is, where are they going to be in 10 years? And there's about a 98% chance they're going to be a lot higher than they are today.
0: Okay, friend, I want to know, what are your money goals this year? Are you saving to buy a house or maybe a wedding or a dream vacation to somewhere tropical? If that's you, please, please take me with you. And now, listeners of this show get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash etm. That's monarchmone dot slash etm for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is on the rise, and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied, or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E slash ETM to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ETM. So if we're investing in our, our 401k or our Roth or our IRA, should we also be investing individually in stocks? How do we balance that approach?
1: Um, so again, all just like with health. All plans are a function of particular circumstances. So with an IRA, by definition, that's going to be long-term money because it's for retirement. So unless you're starting to draw from that money, and even then, uh, long-term money, and I'll define that as money you don't need for five years or more, should largely be in stocks. Why? Because A, stocks have one of the highest returns in excess of inflation, and you're trying to maintain and enhance your purchasing power. And secondly, um, statistically speaking, over five-plus-year periods, stocks tend to have a positive performance. So for retirement money, um, you're going to largely be in stocks. As you approach retirement or in retirement, you'll certainly look to add some fixed income, which is more stable. Why? Because you're going to be pulling money out. And therefore, again, you're matching your assets with your time horizon. Long-term money, stocks, shorter-term money, cash or bonds. Now, if you have excess savings on top of your retirement accounts, so let's say you've maxed out your 401k, you've maxed out your IRA, another form of retirement planning, and you have excess savings, by all means, you should then be investing or saving above and beyond that. How to invest those monies? Same things. So let's say you're you're preparing to buy a home in, in three years. Uh, then you would put some money into stocks because you have a three-year time horizon and maybe some money into fixed income. So anything that you're saving or investing for outside your retirement account will again simply be defined by the time horizon. If you're saving money to buy a home in six months, I don't care if we're in a bull market or bear market or sideways market, that money should be in fixed income because you don't want to have the stock market down right as you're about to make that down payment on the home.
0: All right. So, you know, I was checking out your book and you've got this great framework for finding a good stock. And I think, you know, the million dollar question everyone always wants to know is, how do I know what to invest in? So can you give us any pointers of how we can figure out what what are the best stocks? You know, what should we actually be putting our money into?
1: Sure. Yeah. So like with health, you know, every everyone's circumstances are different. If you walked into a gym and a personal trainer put you on a treadmill and after ten minutes you said, Well, I'm actually here to gain some muscle, then that means that they haven't, you know, done the right thing for you. So for some people, people ask me all the time, you know, is Microsoft a good stock? And I say, Well, it really depends on your circumstances. If you work for Microsoft and half your portfolio is in Microsoft, you might want to be diversifying away from Microsoft. But if you don't own any, it could be a good position for you. So so everything starts with a plan and particular circumstances that said i would say just a few you know to be successful investing you just want to make sure you don't make a few mistakes so mistake number one would be uh not being well-diversified. So you want to make sure you're well-diversified. Um, if you're just starting out, a good way to become well-diversified is just to buy a good broad-based exchange-traded fund an ETF or an index fund just to get broad exposure to the stock market. That could be the SP 500. It could be the Dow. There are a lot of great ETFs that are more growth-oriented or dividend-oriented. But that's just a good way to get some initial stock exposure once that's once you have that in place you want to do a little more individual stock research then there's some great resources to determine what would be good stocks that said again it's very important to be diversified so any individual stock shouldn't typically be more than three or four percent of your portfolio so what you don't want to do is to get some hot tip or hear something on on TV uh, you know someone shouting this stock is great because remember the people on TV that they're not your advisor and they don't know your circumstances. Their job is to entertain and to sell advertising. Their job is not to manage your money. So that can be a resource, but always do your own research. So rather than thinking about just an individual stock, really think about what does the total portfolio look like? Again, it's like your health. You want to look at the totality of your health, your spiritual health, your physical health, your mental health. The portfolio is the same way. You want to look at how all the 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 various aspects of your portfolio fit together. Um, And so you'll want some broad exposure either through an ETF or through individual stocks. And you want, we typically focus on really what we call the best of breed companies in a given industry. So if you are interested in retail, look at the best companies in retail. If you're interested in biotech, look at the best companies in biotech. There's a reason why a company like Coca-Cola has been around for over 100 years has been paying a dividend since 1901, and it's top in its industry. And it's really hard to um, to kill off the leader in a given industry. And therefore, again, that's a great place to start are companies you've heard of, companies that are well-established, companies that are profitable. They may not be as sexy as a company you've never heard of, or they may not double overnight. But again, you're trying to just build out the core of your portfolio. You can always add more speculative uh, investments later on, but really just start with the well-known, well-established companies as a as a starting point for your portfolio.
0: Okay, so I think that's really great. What you just gave us, kind of this framework of of thinking about, uh, you know what what to invest in. How much analysis do we need to do as just like the average everyday investor?
1: Yeah, great question. So it really depends on the kinds of investments you're making. If you're looking at the kind of best of breed. Types of companies, the Googles, the Amazons, the Pfizers, the Coca Cola's of the world. It honestly doesn't take a lot of analysis. Uh, Warren Buffett is known to uh, allocate billions of dollars after a 30 minute analysis and a couple of conversations. Why? Because he knows what he's looking for and his and his filters are very, very fine. In other words, he's not interested in 99% of the investments out there. He's interested in certain criteria. And once he sees those criteria, then he can make decisions very quickly. So if you're if you're investing in, again, companies that have been around for decades, been paying a dividend for decades, they're top in their industry, then you're you're really more focused on the different pieces of your portfolio as opposed to the risk of any one position. That said, if you're looking more at micro-cap stocks or small-cap stocks, then that requires a lot more due diligence. So for example, just to make the point, I've done a lot of venture capital or private equity where you're actually investing in startups or very early-stage companies. For those types of companies, it could take six months' worth of research to really understand the management team, the financials, the products, etc. Um, whereas for again a blue chip company, it, it doesn't require too much. Now you do want to make sure you're not buying a company that's overvalued. So a company can be a great company, but a bad stock. For example, Coca Cola back in the late 1990s was a great company, as was Microsoft, but it was a bad stock. It was simply overvalued, trading at 70, 80, 90 times earnings during that one period. So you want to make sure that you're buying both a good company as well as a good stock. And by good stock, I mean that you're buying it at a reasonable price relative to what it's worth. So, so that's the kind of research I would do is to say, well, what am I interested in? What are some of the companies that I'm aware of? Do I go to Starbucks every day? Do I use particular products from, from a company? Do I shop on Amazon every day? And then look at, look at their financials just to make sure they have good profitability, consistent profitability. And then the final criteria I'd look at is to make sure that you're not overpaying for that stock. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club.
0: Talking about money is hard. You know this already. All over the world, people are taught to never talk about money, politics, sex, or religion in polite company. On 50 Fires, a podcast about money and meeting from executive producers Chip and Joanna Gaines, host and financial conversationalist Carl Richards, will remove money from that list by having frank, funny, and often difficult conversations about money, the kind we're all told not to have, with guests from all walks of life. In each episode, Carl will invite a new guest to answer the question, what does money mean to you? Their answers will reveal much more than their attitudes about money, spanning revelations about identity, community, faith, family, and the true meaning of wealth. Tune in to hear deep conversations about money and the meaning it holds in our lives. You can find 50 Fires on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then, if we're investing in stock, let's say we're investing in Starbucks. We love Starbucks. We go to Starbucks every day. Are we paying attention every day to how that stock is moving up and down, backwards and forwards, or are we looking at things from a longer time horizon, or is there, you know, something in the middle? If we're talking about options and how we're using that.
1: Sure. Yeah. So typically, again, investing is more akin to running a marathon. And when you own a company, you should be prepared to own it for. Three years or more, in other words, it's a it's a long duration asset. So a lot of people buy stocks and then it's down one percent the next day and they think they made a mistake. If, if if that's your mindset going into it, you really shouldn't. Not everyone should own stocks, even if they should own them financially. Some people shouldn't own stocks emotionally. They're just not they don't have the emotional makeup. And so what happens with folks like that is they tend to buy high and sell low. And then buy high again. So, so when you buy a company, you should be prepared to own it for the long term. As such, the day-to-day vacillations in terms of price movement really shouldn't matter to you. Now, if the fundamentals are changing, that's a totally different story. Because again, from time to time, you have great companies that just fall on, on bad times, right? They, they're just they they become overtaken by competitors, for example, like the great example is General Electric, IBM, and others. So so but that's very different than the day-to-day noise. The reality is that stock prices are going to move up and down in the short term. You should be prepared for that. Even for a great company, you know, Apple has dropped over 50% many times during its run to become a three trillion dollar company. Amazon has dropped over 50%, something like twelve or fifteen times since it's become wow. a publicly traded company. So if you if you got scared and sold every time those companies drop 50%, you know, you, you'd you be losing a lot of money. So so don't look at the daily price swings, but do check in periodically with the fundamentals. So that would be things like earnings calls, um, which happen quarterly, things like that. Now, if you're using options, by definition, options tend to have a shorter time horizon associated with them. So let's let's use Star- Starbucks as an example. Great company. I put in my kids' Custodial accounts. Every time we go by a Starbucks and they see a long line, they're like, Daddy, Daddy, I'm getting three pennies from everyone who's in line because it pays a dividend. Truth be told, I did that because they they were mad every time I would stop at Starbucks. And I said, Well, I'll just buy them some shares. So, so they'll be happy. But but Starbucks is a great long-term hold. This is a company that continued to pay its dividend when three quarters of its restaurants were shut down during the pandemic. Again, that's I want to go back to this point of. You buy the best-of-breed companies, and they're going to be able to survive the inevitable downturns. Now, while thousands of single cafes were shutting down permanently around the country, Starbucks was able to stay open pay its dividend, and they actually increase their dividend in the middle of a pandemic. So again, that just shows when you buy the best of breed strong companies that have been around for a long time, you're really going to be able to survive virtually anything. But let's say you own Starbucks for the long term, and you bought it at $100 a share, where it's trading about now, and you sold a call at $110 a share, expiring in three months, such that if Starbucks were to rise to $110 during that time at expiration, you'd be then Required to sell the shares at $110, which you're perfectly fine with because you know ahead of time that's what you are, the trade you are getting into. So then, by definition, your time horizon is actually shorter than years. It could be in, in the form of months. So let's say Starbucks is, is going up to 108, 109, 110, 111 near the strike price for your option. At that point, you may want to take some option, some, some some action to buy the option back, to do various things, which I won't get into. So the point there is that when you layer options on top of stock ownership, that can shorten the time horizon, but only by virtue of the fact that you're trying to achieve a shorter term objective, not because you should be worrying about the day-to-day price fluctuations of the underlying asset, in this case, Starbucks.
0: So in that scenario, we're we're trying to make some some money in a short time horizon, right? And we're trying to guess whether the stock price is going to go up or down, and that's making the decision on on which option contract we're buying.
1: Yeah, there are various ways of looking at it, but here's how we look at it for our clients. Again, first and foremost, you need to buy a good stock because you can sell all the calls in the world and generate premium. They're not going to make up for a company going bankrupt. So so you first have to do your research and, and buy fundamentally good companies, of which Starbucks is one of them. Then you say, well, I own Starbucks $100 a share. I'd like to enhance the income. It pays a nice dividend, about a 2% yield, but I'd like to earn more income for that because I need it to pay my mortgage or for whatever my purposes are. So by selling a call, that can add, as I said before, anywhere between two to four times the dividend in the form of the option's premium income. So so the the use of an option is a way to achieve an objective, in this case, generate income. In addition, you say, well, if I were to gain 10% price in Starbucks from $100 a share where you bought it to 110 the strike price for the call, I'd be perfectly happy to sell anyway. So so I, I don't think it's going to go up 10% because most companies don't go up 10% in three months. But if it did, I'd be a seller anyway. So it's almost like putting an order in ahead of time saying, I'm willing to sell Starbucks at 110 if it gets there. So again, this isn't about speculating or guessing where prices are going to go, it really comes down to achieving specific objectives. So what are the objectives here? First and foremost, own Starbucks, great company. Secondly, earn a dividend from Starbucks. Third, enhance your income through selling an option. Then if, if, not predicting it, not think it's going to happen, but if Starbucks happens to go up a lot in a short period of time, bonus, bonus, You've made it 10% on the price in a short period of time. You take those profits and you go invest in some company that perhaps was down during that period, but that's otherwise a good company.
0: Tell me a little bit about dividend stocks. You've talked about them a few times today, and we haven't talked a lot about dividends on, on this show in the past. You know What are they? How do they work? How are people using dividends to create income?
1: Yes, yeah, so you have companies that both are called growth or non-dividend paying companies. That would be like a Google or an Amazon. Great companies, highly profitable, but they're really pouring a lot of their profits back into their growth. And those are great companies to own, really for almost all investors, but especially investors who have a longer time horizon. So let's say you're in your twenties, thirties, forties, and you really you don't need income because you have income through your through your work. And so, you're going to focus maybe more on growth companies that do not pay a dividend. But there are a lot of people for whom dividend paying stocks are great for a couple of reasons. One, they actually need the cash. So, good dividend paying stocks tend to pay dividends every quarter or every three months. And look at a company like Coca Cola, it's been paying a dividend since 1901, literally hasn't missed a single payment since 1901. And more importantly, they've been raising their dividends for over 60 years. So, that dividend actually goes up typically higher than inflation so every year they'll raise the dividend five six seven eight percent so dividends are a great source of steady and reliable income for people who need to supplement their income it could be in retirement it could be you don't have enough money from your job whatever it may be um, and so that's you know dividend paying stocks are a great tool for that um, in addition even if you don't need the income dividend paying stocks typically are companies that are more mature and more stable. And, and that's why by definition, they can pay some of their profits out in the form of a dividend as opposed to just reinvesting it into the company. Now they are still investing in their company, but they may pay out 30, 40, or 50% of their profits in the form of a dividend. Wow. So let's say it's, an, it's Johnson Johnson and they make, I'm just going to make this up, they make $10 billion a year. Now, if they were Amazon, they may say, well, we want to put of that back into the company to build warehouses, et cetera. So we're not going to pay a dividend. But Johnson Johnson says, you know what? We don't need all 10 billion. We're going to give 5 billion of it to our shareholders and invest 5 billion back into the business. So once the company starts paying a dividend, the last thing they want to do is to cut the dividend. So it'd be be like if you are known in the community as someone who gives $10,000 every year to the local charity. The last thing you want to do is not be able to 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 make that contribution because it might be embarrassing. It might reduce your standing in the community. Well, same thing. If your Coca-Cola had been paying a dividend since 1901 and one day you tell your shareholders, sorry, we can't pay it anymore. Well, that's going to have a negative impact on your stock, not to mention affect the shareholders who are relying on that. What that means is that these companies tend to have very good financial discipline because they need to manage their business such that they can not only pay that dividend every 90 days, but they can increase it every 365 days. Again, go back to the analogy. If you had consistently donated money in the community, you're probably going to manage your finances such that you can keep that going, right? It's just it provides an incentive, a financial incentive, a motivational incentive, a moral incentive. And that means these companies tend to be. Uh, very well run uh, and and uh, very disciplined about their money. The final point I would make is that statistically speaking, dividend paying stocks tend to, I'm talking broadly speaking, they tend to go down less than the market during market declines. Mm, okay. Why? Because they tend to be traded at lower PE ratios. So again, growth stocks might be trading at a 50 PE ratio. The market goes down, and they start trading at a 40 PE ratio. Still a great company, but they've dropped 20 percent. Whereas a company like Johnson Johnson might be trading at a 16 times PE ratio during a bear market. It drops down to maybe 14 times. So so the the, the stock simply goes down less than the overall market or relative to its non-dividend paying peers, and also people. Want to hold on to their dividend-paying stocks, not sell them in in declines. Why? Because they rely on that on that dividend. The final point I'd make is that people underappreciate the dividends have represented upwards of fifty percent of stock returns over time. In other words, if you look at returns of the SP 500, which has averaged around eight or nine percent per year over long periods, I'm talking about decades, not year to year. Almost half of that return has been in the form of dividends. So what that means is that if you have a company that's paying you dividends, almost half of your returns are are highly likely. I'm not going to say assured because there are companies that cut dividends from time to time. But if you have a portfolio of 20, 30 companies that have consistent dividend payments, that means that regardless of what prices are doing today or tomorrow, about half your returns are going to come in the form of a dividend, which are just steady and reliable. So for all those reasons, dividend-paying stocks can be a really important part of your portfolio, uh, on top of growth stocks as well, depending on your circumstances.
0: I want to go back to, to your book, Closing Us Out Here. You, you actually end your book talking about lessons learned. I love this chapter. You've got nine of them listed in the book, but I'm curious maybe what your top you know, two or three lessons learned are that you think all of us need to know about investing.
1: Yeah, and that that could have been the whole book in and of itself. <laughs> we learned so many lessons personally in our lives, uh, as well as working with others uh, through observation. But as I said before, really investing is about minimizing mistakes. You know, in life, whether it's your health or with money, if you if you do a few things right, uh, you're, you're gonna you're gonna have a, a highly likelihood of a successful outcome. You know, if you don't drink too much alcohol and you don't eat too much sugar and you exercise a little bit every day, you're probably going to stay healthy. If you do certain things with investing, you're probably going to have a, a successful outcome. So I'd say lesson number one is just understand what are typical mistakes and and avoid them. You know, whether it's working with someone else who keeps you from making those mistakes yourself or setting up structures so that you're not making those mistakes. Uh, A couple of them, again, that people make are they, they mismatch their investments with their time horizon. They'll invest in stocks for money that they need in the near term. Or more importantly, people will say, I don't want to take the risk of stocks for money that they don't need for many, many years, when actually not investing in stocks is taking on risk. What's the risk? The risk is you won't have enough money in the future. Your future self won't have enough money. So people think they're reducing their risk by keeping money in cash for money that they don't need for many, many years, but in reality, they're, they're taking on risk. So by taking some time to say, what funds do I need for the near term to cover the next day, week, month, couple of years, and then allocating appropriately to cash and fixed income, and then saying, what money do I not need for three, five years or more? That alone is going to Put you in the top 10% of, of success when it comes to investing. and Then the other one, I know it's it said over and over, but we just tend to fall you know, into the same mistakes, is just being well diversified. It's so tempting to follow the latest trend, to, to buy what's in the news today, put a lot of money into a single thing like an nft or cryptocurrency whatever because it's doing well we've all seen how those movies end and they tend to end badly especially if they're if they're fads so you just want to stay well diversified there's room for a little bit of that in your portfolio you know few percent in, in crypto a few percent here and there but just don't put too much of your portfolio into something that's not really tried and tested because um, it's really hard to make up for losses.
0: What I really want you to remember is that with some tools and strategies like Scott and Patrick talked about, you can learn how to manage your investments in good times and bad. Of course, we always want the good times. We always want the great returns. But the bad times, they do come. This is part of investing, and it's nothing to be afraid of. So even if options and dividend stocks sound really complicated, I'd actually encourage you to pick up a copy of their book, Compound Code. You can find it on Amazon or on their website at coastwisegroup.com. It's written in, I believe, a really easy to understand way that gives you a lot of insider tips and how to avoid these common investing mistakes so you can just reach your goals, hopefully a lot easier and with a lot less stress. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, head on over to whatever app you're listening to right now. Give us five stars, leave us a review for this episode. As always, the links to our guests as well as the sponsors who make this show possible will be right in the show notes. And I will see you back here in a few days for a brand new episode.